Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, You'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Andrew Coyne, longtime Canadian columnist and political commentator. He currently writes for the Global Mail and appears regularly on CBC's At Issue panel. Andrew is a rarity in Canadian public commentary. His ideas and arguments are worth reading, even in those cases when one disagrees with them. I'm grateful to speak with him today about some of those underlying ideas, including a 2017 essay he wrote for The Walrus on how to, quote, save the Conservative Party. Andrew, let's start with some general questions about your ideas and your work. You have a well-earned reputation as a trenchant voice on matters of policy and politics. On some issues, including, for instance, the role of government in the economy, you're to the right of the Conservative Party. On others, though, you're more centrist, and you've even voted NDP in recent elections. How do you think of yourself? How would you describe your worldview? Well, you know, people are always tending to pigeonhole people. And that's natural, I suppose. We try to simplify and things. What I don't understand is why people want to pigeonhole themselves. So when people ask me, I say sort of half jokingly, uh, I'm a conservative, liberal, libertarian socialist. But I kind of mean it because, you know, I've always felt that each of the traditions is something to teach us. There are nuggets of wisdom in conservatism and liberalism and libertarianism and socialism. And I don't see why you have to sort of buy the package. Now, that being said, I've become more more comfortable with calling myself a conservative in recent times, mostly because um, liberalism, capital liberalism in particular, has moved so far left. So that you are now in the position as a conservative of, of battling for sort of late 20th century liberalism. And I'm, I guess I'm more comfortable with that. And I guess also as I get older, I'm more temperamentally conservative in the sense of appreciating the value of caution of moving incrementally, I think I'm less impatient than I might have been in the past. But, you know, I think a lot of people will say to themselves, well, I'm a conservative, therefore I believe X. And I guess I approach it more in the nature of, here's what I believe. And yeah, I guess some of that falls into the camp of conservatism. Fair enough, if you want to label me. Your formative years were spent in Winnipeg. How do you think that experience has caused you to see the country, its politics, and its culture? Uh, Winnipeg is a wonderful place, uh, and Manitoba in particular, in, in, or in general, I suppose. Manitoba is in the center of the country, not just geographically, but in every other way. It's kind of a microcosm of the country. You've got you've got all the, the conservative, liberal, and NDP all do well there. You've got the French influence, the British influence, the indigenous influence, the immigrant communities. So it really doesn't seem to go too far in one direction or another. It, it has an appreciation for balance for moderation, for humility and modesty. Winnipeg is not a place where you put on airs. And I guess all those things uh, are are things that I value and appreciate, even if I don't necessarily exemplify them myself. 
And I think also it's not just that I grew up in Winnipeg, but also that I moved somewhere else. And I think your vision of the country to some extent is, is going to be shaped by where you're from. And if you've only ever lived in one part of the country, you're going to have a particular perspective. If you've lived in different parts of the country, I think it it, uh, it adds something, I think, to, to your ability to sort of see it, how other people see things. Um, you mentioned in a previous answer that you're, you've um, your worldview has evolved over time, and, and that's natural. Are there thinkers and writers that are particularly influencing the way you think about politics and culture and economics today? Modern, current things, I have to think about that. I mean, my background was I took economics and history in university, so I'm steeped in you know the usual Western liberal tradition, Locke and Smith and Hume and all that. I grew up in a particular time of when inflation was rampant, when confidence in government had ebbed only because government had so overreached in the post-war years. People thought, well, if we can win a war with government, why can't we win the peace? Why can't we run a, war, a peacetime economy the same way we ran a wartime economy? And so when, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you really had the influence of people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. Uh, and in my particular case, you know, I was in, I did grad school in London in the mid 80s, which was the high watermark of Thatcherism uh, as an intellectual movement. And it really was an intellectual movement. I think people, if they think it was just about Thatcher, I think they're missing out. There was a whole school and it was complicated and more nuanced and more sophisticated than I think people understand and much more heterodox in terms of its, it saw roles for the state in certain types of things. And you had writers then in the British press, really quite extraordinary figures like Samuel Britton, the longtime economics commentator at the Financial Times, um, or Peter Jay at the Times, or uh, Ferdinand Mount at the Telegraph. And they all had this, this kind of take on things that was agreeable, that wasn't dogmatic, that saw a role for markets, a very strong role for markets, but also, as I say, understood the places where the state had to, had to step in. And that was liberating in a way. You didn't have to be all one thing or the other. You could you could understand how the pieces fit together. And then I think the final influence was uh, Michael Kinsley, the great American uh, columnist and editor, who just, again, that kind of heterodoxy, um, a sense of humor and, and ability to write in a very persuasive way. And I, I, I aspire to that. Um, if we can take a minute just to speak about some specific policy issues for which you've been involved in the debate over the years. One, for instance, is the issue of legalized physician-assisted death, where you've consistently been one of the most eloquent critics of the legal regime that uh, came in, in, into effect in, in, in recent years. What, in your worldview, has led you to assume such a principled opposition to the idea of physician-assisted death in Canada? Well, it probably, I mean, part of it, I guess, is I'm not a fan of abortion. I have um, um, moderately pro-life positions on abortion. And I think I can see how we can be in haste as a society to uh, assert our own conveniences at the expense of very vulnerable and helpless uh, other beings. So that's maybe a warning sign or a bell that might have been ringing in that. I think in particular, though, with, with assisted suicide, it was how easily the slope became slippery. You know, undergraduates are all taught slippery slopes is just a fallacy. Well, no, it's not always a fallacy. Some slopes are indeed uh, uh, slippery. and when you see the progression of how that came to pass, where it was initially pitched as people who were in the last agonizing stages of a terminal disease, who were physically unable to end their own lives. I mean, nobody wants to ban suicide, but th in this case, they were physically unable to do it. And therefore, the argument was, well, they you know, they, somebody has to help them put them out of their misery. 
Well, that's a very, very narrow case. It was the Sue Rodriguez type of case. And it was almost instantly, instantly elasticized. First, it was to people who aren't in that stage now, but might be in the future. And therefore, they need to be able to avail themselves of assistance now because, you know, come the, come the you know, when, when they were in the last stages, they wouldn't be able to do so. Or it became, it, it started to include not just a, a physical pain, but psychological pain, which is a much more elusive thing to define. And when you started to sort of burrow into the underlying rationale for it, it really didn't allow for any constraint, as we're starting to see, that once you've uh, 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 accepted this idea that this is actually just a, a basic human right, not just to kill yourself, but to have somebody else kill you, then are you going to con- prevent the mentally handicapped from, from availing themselves of that? Are you going to prevent children from doing so? And of course, when that was first raised, people said, slippery slope, this is alarmism. And they were perhaps unaware that people even then were arguing precisely that and are going to continue to argue precisely that. So I think the uh, the nature of that I, I found very um, disturbing. And, and it was at the same time kind of interesting to unpack it as, a, as an intellectual puzzle. How did people go down this road? How did they allow themselves to lose their bearings so much that we could start advocating as a society for, um, you know, basically killing disabled children? You've similarly been a major champion of electoral reform and strengthening the role and voice of individual parliamentarians. Yet you're also a major critic of the notwithstanding clause and support having courts act as the final arbiter of rights. How do you reconcile, on one hand, your credentials as a, quote, small D Democrat, and on the other, your opposition to the notwithstanding clause? Well, I should say, first of all, I don't actually think the courts are the final arbiters of rights. I actually do think it is a dialogue. And when you look at how these things generally evolve, courts don't look into the purpose of a law. They simply look at, in pursuit of that purpose, did you overreach? And to the extent that you overreach, they typically don't throw the whole law out. They say this particular provision is a little overbroad, and it's absolutely open to governments to to turn around and say, okay, let's try it this way. We're still going to achieve the purpose that the law was set out to do so, but we're going to do so in a less uh, ham-handed and overbroad way. So I do think the dialogue model actually fits that in, in virtually every case I've seen. That the notion that there's runaway courts out there who are just going to absolutely block uh, needed legislation, almost never the case. And in fact, for every case you can find of courts overreaching, of, of tossing out laws without proper constitutional authority, and those, those cases do exist, you can find plenty of examples of courts refusing to throw out laws that they should have thrown out, being overly deferential to the legislature. So that's first point. Second point is the charter and the constitution were passed by a democratically elected legislature, and not just one, but all but one of them, parliament plus nine of the provincial legislatures. And Quebec, which was the lone holdout, has a charter of its own that's virtually identical. So when people say you want to respect the will of parliament, well, which parliament are you talking about? These laws were passed and they were intended to be binding promises. They were intended to say, As a society, we are not going to violate this, this, and this right. And all the courts are doing is holding governments to their word. Anytime you issue a a statement like that or a promise like that in private life, you don't get to vouch for your own credit. Somebody has to actually be the, you know, if you you swear an oath, somebody has to figure out whether you've actually lived up to that oath or not. Uh, And so similarly, that's the role of the courts, and it's the role finally, that the courts were assigned by the democratically elected legislatures in parliament. They're the ones who included the the provision in the charter saying the courts shall, you know, if they find a a law is inconsistent with the charter, that law will be of no force or effect. So I don't see uh, the contradiction there that, that many people often paint their being. 
there's a real consistency throughout much of your writing on matters of politics, economics, and, and culture, and, and so on. One can pretty reliably know where you'll come down on different issues. What are some issues, Andrew, where your position has changed in your multiple decades as a columnist and commentator in Canada? Well, I, I can't think of a lot of ones where I've made any, you know, 180-degree shifts. And I think that's partly in the nature of how I came to the views I hold. I didn't have I didn't come out with a full-blown ideology out of the box, or certainly not by the time I was writing in the mid-20s, maybe when I, was, when I was younger, a bit more that way. But by the time I was sort of starting to, to piece out what I believed about various issues, I mean, I came back from grad school having done an economics degree, a graduate degree, and I was plunged into the middle of the free trade debate, the GST debate, and I had to write editorials for the Financial Post, as it then was, and I had to figure out you know, what do I think about free trade? That sounds elementary now, but at the time, these were, these were big, huge issues. So I had a framework. I had a toolkit that I had assembled in school from my training there. And, and then I sort of set about trying to sort of apply it to, to a, a range of issues as I went on. And I think I tried to make the, the pieces fit together in a consistent and coherent way. But it was more a series of sort of tentative hypotheses that I then filled in the blanks. I think as I've gone on, I've, I've maybe uh, acquired a more nuanced or more or deeper understanding of issues than, than the sort of surplus level I might have had at the first. I think, for example, when it comes to healthcare or to education, I think I see roles for markets in both of those areas. But I, I think I'm much more alert to the pitfalls and the dangers and the, the ways in which markets can fail in both of those areas than I might have been when I, when I first approached the issue. I probably had more simplistic approaches to that. I think I've certainly, I, I think one area on which I've had a pretty big rethink is on the internet. I think I was much more of an internet evangelist when it first came along, particularly when it came to the media, that, that we should make everything free. Certainly that was a mistake. But also, you know, in the last couple of years in particular, I haven't rethought or, or, or recanted my belief in free speech and my belief that the state should not be regulating speech on the internet, internet or anywhere else. I've become much more aware, I think, of how much of our whole philosophy of free speech grew up in an area, in, in, in an era when there were gatekeepers, private gatekeepers, when there were, when to get your views, uh, you could always stand in a street car, corner and yell, nobody's going to venture, but to have broad distribution, to have amplification of your views to a mass audience, you had to persuade other people to publish you. You had to persuade other people with skin in the game, with reputations to uphold, with businesses to run, et cetera. And those gatekeepers served, I think, a vital role of creating a, a space in the public space uh, where reasonable, reasonable people could differ. And both parts of that, of that sentence are very important. You could differ. There, there were legitimate differences you could have. There wasn't just one side of it. But you had to be reasonable. We weren't going to just give a, a platform to every passing Nazi or flat earther. And all of that in the age of social media has fallen down. And we are in an era now where people are being overwhelmed. They're, they're processing faculties. The, human, the processing power of the human mind has not changed. But they're drinking this stuff in like a fire hose. And as we're seeing, a lot of them are being overwhelmed by it. They're being radicalized in one direction or another, or, or to give it a less gentle name, or being turned crazy by it. So picking our way out of that is going to be very difficult. I don't want the government doing it, but I, I think I'm more aware of how much free speech depends upon that, that, uh, that scaffolding of, of, uh, uh, of the gatekeepers. 
It's a fascinating answer, Andrew. I think, for instance, of the stories from the, the middle or second half of the 20th century when figures like Bill Buckley excommunicated Ayn Rand or the John Birch Society from the conservative movement. And the notion that someone has that kind of authority today um, or could you know, communicate a decision like that and somehow it would be honored and respected by people in society seems kind of laughable. Which brings me it's to a, my next... It's a double, sorry, go ahead, pardon It's me. a double-edged sword, if I can just pick up on the, briefly on that point. It's a double-edged sword because there's no doubt that the gatekeepers also probably marginalized a lot of views that deserve to be expressed and a lot of voices. So I'm not saying it was a golden age where everything was perfect. But my goodness, uh, the age we're in now is just utter anarchy. So what we need is our choice of gatekeepers. So that if one gatekeeper is not getting the balance right, is marginalizing people who ought not to be marginalized, you can, you can go find another gatekeeper who can get the balance more appropriately. But the notion that, that every viewpoint is equally valid, that everything deserves a, a massive platform, and that everything should be available to everybody without any editing or fact-checking, or, that's not how the human mind evolved, and we're paying the price for it. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. In that context, Andrew, what do you think the role of a national columnist is in this fragmented media environment? Can columnists still influence public discourse and the public agenda? I'm skeptical, particularly any one columnist. I think maybe the media in general has some influence, although even that is overstated. I mean, obviously it has any influence, but you're always struck by how the moment of maximum media gloom about the economy, for example, uh, when the, the recession just is never going to end, that's precisely when people start spending and investing again. So there's a whole range of other things that influence public opinion than just the media. I think we often overstate that, but it has some influence. And within the media sphere, and maybe, you know, columnists or, or reporters, news reporters also can have influence at the margin uh, here and there. But uh, I think one has to be, uh, you know, fairly uh, humble about it. You know, if I were ever teaching a journalism class, and this anecdote is rapidly growing dated, but the field trip would be to, to go sit on an airplane when they're passing out the newspapers, because it's a usefully humiliating experience. If, if your column was in the paper that day, you get to watch people reading the paper. You know, and they turn the page and they turn the page and they get to the page your column is on and then they turn the page or even worse, they read the first two paragraphs and then they turn the page. So what you come to appreciate is the reader doesn't know, owe you anything. The, the, if you can get the reader to stop and spend three minutes reading your column, that is achievement in itself. And it's hard because people have got so many other things they can do with their time. So you better I mean, make it worth their while. You may, better make yourself agreeable company, first of all. And second of all, you got to give them something. You got to tell them something they didn't know or make them laugh or persuade them to a point of view that they didn't hold before. So I guess, you know, 
you, if you can do that fairly consistently, get people to actually read your column, that, that's achievement enough. If we can spend um, the rest of our conversation focused on the 2017 essay that you wrote for The Walrush, which I mentioned in the introduction, it was a fascinating essay that uh, I'd encourage listeners to read. I'll ask about its underlying ideas in a minute, but maybe inversely, let's start with the matter of political prescription. Uh, you call on Canadian conservatives to, quote, move the middle of Canadian politics. What do you mean by that? And how would it differ from what conservatives do now, in your view? Well, conservatives in particular are in a funny position in Canada in particular, because they think of themselves as both an ideological party, but also a contender for power. And they haven't really done either of them very well. I, I like to say they have, you know, all the principled foundations of the Liberal Party and all the electoral success of the NDP. So it's a dilemma for them. And the, the way they've resolved that dilemma is... They acquire an ideology, and if it doesn't work, uh, then the next election, they throw it out and try to get a new one. So they're always kind of casting about for kind of a new ideas or new prescriptions. And they do so in part because of advice from pundits like me that uh, you need to move to the middle. Uh, The the, the middle is where the votes are. You win elections by by being the moderate middle ground. And as a matter of arithmetic, of course, that's true. You know, the the median voter is, 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 is where it's at. But as a matter, it, 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 the flaw in that prescription is it assumes the middle is some kind of fixed meridian, like, like the Greenwich meridian, that it never moves, that it's just there and then you just fight it out for who can get closest to it. But in fact, the middle is always moving around. So, for example, you know, circa 1992, balancing the budget was an unimaginably right-wing barbaric idea that no decent person could possibly subscribe to. And by about three or four years later, it was absolute middle ground orthodoxy. Why? Because, you know, the, the, the ground had shifted, partly because of the Reform Party, partly because of the Liberal Party's great conversion on the road to Damascus on that. But it became the center ground of Canadian politics. And then, you know, of late, it's become orthodoxy now to run deficits, and that will shift again. So if you're in the persuasion business, which people in politics ought to regard themselves as being, then I think, you know, yes, you want to be you want to be relevant to people. You want to have policies that are actually addressed to things that are on the public's mind. Uh, though I think you also have a role to put things on the agenda that weren't there previously. But you want to be relevant, absolutely. But if you believe in something, if you believe that these are the right prescriptions, then your job should be, it seems to me, to try to move people your way, to try to find a way to uh, bring them around to your point of view. That's what I try to do in my columns, and I don't think it's that different for somebody in public life. So if at first you don't succeed, you know, try again. If over a prolonged period of time, you find that you're just not relevant, you're just, people just aren't even interested at all, then at at some point, maybe you want to have a rethink. But, you know, the NDP has never won an election federally, but they've been enormously influential in terms of uh, the the policies that were actually enacted. And so was the Reform Party. Uh, So there are more things in life than just being in power. Uh, But as I say, unfortunately, the conservatives get close enough that they sometimes forget that. Um, Your core intellectual point in the essay is that conservatives ought to champion a political and social vision rooted in a textured understanding of markets as social institutions. Maybe a two-part question. What do you mean by markets as a social institution? And how would that vision manifest itself in a positive, aspirational, and ultimately politically appealing policy agenda? There's a tendency for people who understand and believe in the virtues of free markets to pitch them in terms that already appeal to people who already think the way they do. So they become entranced 
with their roles as that they allow you know individuals to pursue their own destiny. They uh, they help create wealth. They harness the dynamism of entrepreneurs. All these kinds of arguments that are true, but if you're trying to reach the people who don't already think that way, that's not what's on their mind. So that's the first point: is that people want to those kinds of people want to know. Is there some order to this universe or important social objectives going to be attended here? Or are you simply, is, is, is market simply code for uh, throwing the poor to the wind and ignoring all these pressing social problems? I guess maybe the best way I can answer your question is by citing the example of, of carbon pricing. You know, you had a whole generation of environmentalists who grew up who understood, who got it, who understood how markets can be harnessed to social goals in the original social goal they were harnessed was eliminating scarcity, was creating wealth, but they can also serve other goals. And in this particular, if you get the prices right, uh, you can you can uh, make for a cleaner environment and, and for less uh, carbon emissions in the air. Uh, well, that was a great advance in expanding the understanding of markets that they're not just about, they're not just arenas for private gain, they're tools for solving social problems. What they do is they harness, yes, they involve individual free will and free choices, but they harness those choices. They integrate those choices into a socially beneficial order. The thing about markets really is not so much that they liberate you to do whatever you like, but rather that they require you to do things that are useful to others. The, the way in which you make money in a market is by useful exchange, by, by selling people things they need at a price they're willing to pay. And if you're not able to do that, there's actually a kind of a collectivist aspect of this that your, your company will be driven out of business. Uh, now, that's not the same as, as saying, uh, you know, the poor must go to the wall. There's a difference between helping people on low income to prevent them from falling below a decent minimum. But the collectivist idea of the businesses that cannot uh, make a good that is more valuable to society than the resources it costs to produce it, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a social idea. That's a, that's a, that's a social obligation. So that's, I think it's, it, it, you know, we, we can understand markets as being things that actually uh, serve social objectives and being social institutions in the same way that the government is. They're different instru instruments, uh, better suited to different tasks. Markets are better suited to things involving efficiency and allocation of resources in ways that prevent shortages and surpluses. The state is, and, and government are more suited to questions of distributional equity because those are inherently collective decisions. What's a just distribution of income? Uh, and so the, the sort of overall philosophy I was trying to pursue there is let each do the task that it is best suited to and don't try and mix them up. Don't, don't get the market. Don't try and twist the market to achieve uh, social goals like distribution of income, which we're constantly doing by fiddling around with prices. And don't try and get the state involved in matters that are properly the markets, i.e. trying to achieve allocative efficiency, because it's really not very good at that. So the sort of policy prescriptions that come out of that are, you can use uh, markets in areas that we traditionally haven't, and I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, healthcare and education, as long as you make sure that you're taking care of the distributional equity questions by the state. So, you know, allocating public funds to schools, uh, so they're publicly funded, and the people aren't having to pay out of pocket for them, but allowing people their choice of schools and allowing the schools to be individually managed, not having to answer to some education bureaucracy. That's a kind of a social market uh, approach to it. And, and similarly in healthcare, again, you've got to be very careful there because patients aren't in a, in a position to make a lot of complicated decisions in healthcare, but you can modify that where you have doctors or other providers making decisions on their behalf 
and you can incorporate competition and prices within a publicly funded envelope. And this is the thing we've been arguing about as a society for some years now is if you have any private involvement in the provision of, of healthcare services, is that somehow the same as people paying out of pocket? And it's required a lot of work, but I think we've managed to get people around to the idea that no, that you, 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 the, the one does not imply the other. You can have a fully publicly funded system with no user fees and yet incorporate competition in markets and, and, and prices within that publicly funded system. Just a penultimate question. Um, you, you argue in the essay that consumer and producer interests are, are one and the same. Um, but isn't there a case, Andrew, that the experience of the so-called China shock has brought that into question? That is to say, we, we may have gotten cheaper consumer goods through increasing trade exposure with China, but at a significant cost for many industries, workers, and communities. In effect, the consumer gains came at the high cost of producer losses. Well, but this is not a new argument. I mean, this is the classic argument about protections versus free trade from time immemorial. And I guess the answer is that, that, that we, you know, we, 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 you don't just stop it there as being, well, it's just workers versus consumers. First of all, those consumers who are getting cheaper goods are also workers. But more importantly, the real income that they're saving, the increase in their real income from lower tariffs and cheaper imports coming in, that increases their income. Well, what happens? They spend that income in other parts of the economy, creating other jobs and supporting other industries across the economy, or put it another way. If you raise tariffs, yeah, you benefit the protected industry, the protected firms, the protected workers, but you do so at the expense of all the other workers and firms and industries that might have benefited from that real income that consumers are thereby deprived of. So ultimately, protectionism doesn't protect Canada versus China. It protects the protected sectors at the expense of all the other sectors in the domestic economy. So that's why that consumer versus worker dichotomy, I think, breaks down there. It, it's the worker interests ultimately is in making goods and services that consumers want to buy. There's no other safeguard for workers or firms or industries than being able to produce a good and service that, that can compete with any other provider anywhere in the world. Let's end with how we started. Early in our conversation, you talked about paradigmatic change occurring in the late 70s and early 80s um, as the costs and consequences of, of government overreach manifested themselves in the economy and uh, Friedman, Hayek, Thatcher, Reagan, and so on were in the ascendancy. We find ourselves in a moment, one might describe a, a progressive moment. You know, how can those who believe in markets and have some skepticism about the, the type of ambition we're seeing with respect to the, the role of, of government in the economy and the society start to uh, push back and, and, and rebuild the case for markets generally and, and markets as the social institution, as you set out in, in, in your, your essay for the walrus in particular? Well, there's a number of answers to that. I mean, the first is focus on that rather than chasing a bunch of irrelevant hobby horse issues. I mean, how did conservatives become the party of vaccine skepticism? Uh, how did the party, the conservatives become the party of climate denialism? Why is it you're obliged as a conservative to be anti-science, uh, as too many of them are these days? I think that's a, a, a you know, and, and more broadly, and maybe this is the second answer, is you've got to focus on the issues that are of concern to the public today. People are very worried about climate change. People are very worried about the pandemic. They have a right to be. And if you don't have an answer to that as a party, then you're going to be ruling yourself out of the debate. The second or third answer to that would be, to some extent, time will have to pass. Uh, that 
in the moment of uh, progressive ascendancy, uh, it's going to be harder for those costs to be apparent. So, for example, right now, in the middle of the pandemic and the lockdown and the, and the enormous expansion of the state, people are aware of all the good things the government has done to support incomes in the last couple of years. But the, the bill for that is going to be coming due. And I'm not saying the government shouldn't have done that in the middle of the pandemic, but it's very clear that the Trudeau government would like to look, use this as a springboard to for a more permanent ex- expansion of the state in ways that are, I think, less advised. The costs of that are going to be coming due. And at, at that moment, you may get a more of a hearing. I do think in particular, if, we, if you're talking about that sort of social market approach that I was talking about, that it was an enormous opportunity miss on, on carbon pricing. I hate, hate to single that out, but it, it is you know, one of the central issues of our time. And it could have been a great moment. It just was the biggest win for markets in, in you know, generations that people put aside the regulatory subsidy model, at least partly, in favor of a, of a flexible price-oriented model. And conservatives could have taken that and run with it, first of all, on its own as an issue. They could have owned that issue and they could have had a much clearer and purer version of that than the very muddled version the liberals have brought forward that would have cost the economy much less, would have achieved our, our climate goals much more effectively. But secondly, they could have said, okay, if you like what the market can do for your environment, can we interest you in what it can do for your healthcare or your education or these other areas where you know, there's room to expand a market approach rather than the traditional, very top-down statist approach to things. And that that opportunity was blown. And so it's going to be a much harder slog to make those arguments. Uh, you know, you have to make them as you go on, but it, you lost that opportunity, which raises, I guess, a final point in this, which is, I think conservative intellectual muscles atrophied in the, in the 90s. Partly because they won a lot of they won a lot of fights and they got lazy, and partly they won a lot of those fights with the sledgehammer of the deficit. We can't do X or Y because we can't afford it. Became a very simple one size fits all answer to a lot of a lot of different questions, and it might have won the argument in the short term, but at the cost of people going away grumbling, saying, "Well, is the only reason we can't afford it? What about when we can afford it? What, should we do it then?" So rather than making arguments on the merits of what is the appropriate role of the state, what should it be doing and what shouldn't it be doing, it just became this kind of uh, uh, you know exercise in accountancy. And so when, in fact, the deficit receded as an issue, conservatives were kind of caught flat-footed. And of course, at the same time, they were falling into the, the populist trap of, uh, the, of Trumpism, et cetera. So conservatism has not had a lot of uh, good answers lately to the questions that are on people's minds. The left has had answers, good and bad, but most importantly, politically, they've had answers and they've definitely been on the march and conservatives have been very um, looking very ill at ease. I mean, in Canada, that's there's a long historical there point there as well, which is the conservatives have generally lost elections in Canada. So that's layered on top of it. But ultimately, they've got to uh, come back to what do we believe? Why do we believe it? Why do we believe things that are different than what the other parties believe? And if having done all that exercise... We think those answers are the right ones for society. Have some self-confidence, uh, buck up your nerve, and, and get out there and make your case. Well, that sounds like a, a good instruction manual uh, to me. A- Andrew, thanks uh, for joining us today at Hub Dialogues, uh, sharing some insight into your own worldview and how it's evolved over the years and applied to different matters of public policy, and also your thoughts on the future of conservative ideas and conservative politics in Canada. Grateful to have been able to talk to you. Thanks, Sean. I enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.